Welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Show with Ryan Greenberg and Nick Calpas. Hey guys, before we get to this episode of the Everyday Millionaire Show, we have to thank our sponsors. One, National Lumber is your Maryland local building supplier. They supply everything from doors, windows, trim, lumber, you name it, they will get it. If you're a builder, contractor, investor, do yourself a favor, go get yourself an account with National Lumber. You'll have an account manager who's very knowledgeable in their field. They'll help you do takeoffs. They'll help you order finishes. Um, Pretty much you name it, they got it. Head over to National Lumber on Pulaski Highway in Baltimore City and get yourself some, uh, some building material. Our second sponsor is Trias Lending Partners. Trias is a Maryland local real estate investing lending company. So they are lending money to real estate investors. If you are somebody that's listening to the show that doesn't understand how people raise money for real estate ventures, such as buying rental properties or flipping houses, this is your answer. Trias. Trias Lending is the solution. They fund everything from your short-term buy, renovate, rent product to your long-term 30-year fixed DSCR, debt service loan. Uh, You name it, they can help you out. If you are a new real estate investor or somebody that's seasoned and ready to buy their 50th door, contact Trias Lending Partners for any of your real estate investing needs. All right, guys. Welcome back to another episode of the Everyday Millionaire Show. We're here with Russell Brazil. Hey, everyone. We are out here in uh, San Diego at the Bigger Pockets Conference. Nick, how you doing, man? Good. How you guys doing? Good. So, Russell... Let's let's hear a little bit about you. We are kind of from similar areas back home. We met out here. I think we we kind of talked on the bigger pockets platform. on the forums a yeah, little yeah, bit. Yeah. I think yeah. Um, so yeah, what's your story, man? Yeah. So my name is Russell Brazil. I am an associate real estate broker with Arlo Real Estate. Um, I do a little bit of everything in the in the real estate industry. So I'm a high producing agent. Uh, I'm an investor with a portfolio of properties in the D.C. area. I occasionally flip. Uh, I'm on my local Realtor Association's Board of Directors, as well as the National Association of Realtors Board of Directors. Nice. Awesome. What so, year good. What year did you get started in real estate, and how did you get started in real estate? Yeah, so I first got involved in real estate about 19 years ago now. I started flipping up in the Boston market. Um, this was during the uh, housing bubble, and... Interestingly enough, my first three flips, I lost money. So like when it was impossible to lose money, I was still figuring out a way to fuck things up. Can I swear on this? Yeah. Uh, Fuck things up and lose money in real estate. So um, from 2003 to about 2007, I was doing some flips. And then 2009, I started building my rental portfolio after the market collapsed. So your rental portfolio is all in D.C.? Yeah, primarily in D.C., though I've, I have invested in uh, Boston as well as Charlotte, but I do try to keep most of my properties local to the D.C. area. So how many properties are, are out of state for you? Uh, two properties are out of state. Um, okay. And that, that was just a weird 1031 thing where I was having trouble um, identifying replacement properties and so weirdly just ended up down there. Cool. So we were talking just before this about somebody that we met here that has multiple properties in different cities. And I, you know, I asked the question about, is that scalable? Do you see that being scalable because you have to have contractors and cleaners and people placing tenants, property managers potentially on all these different places? Yeah, certainly building a large portfolio is more easily scaled if you're, lo- if you're locating all those properties in the same geographic area. 
once you start expanding to multiple geographic areas, it's just going to be harder, right? Because now instead of dealing with one plumber, maybe you're dealing with three, four, five different plumbers in different markets. Um, and as we all know as real estate investors, right, finding good contractors is maybe the hardest thing. So once you start, you know, haphazardly having stuff in different areas, it's harder to scale, but not impossible. So what are some of your systems that you talked about prior to the show that you're saying you, you systemize your, your um, rentals so you only work about 30 minutes a month per house? Yeah, uh, not per house, but on the entire portfolio. On the entire portfolio. Um, so some of my systems, this is one of the easiest systems. Um, one, of, I mean, I can't believe how easy this is. I was dumbfounded till someone mentioned it. And you guys probably know Mark Watson, right? Um, um, he's, a, he's a Baltimore guy. Okay. So this is one of the simplest things ever. He put all of his properties on a master key system. So I used to have this huge, huge key ring with God knows how many keys. Um, now all of my properties are on master key systems and my go-to contractors have a copy of that key. So I never have to go to a property. Um, and how I solve you know, the issues with my tenants is if they call, there's a leak, I just call the plumber, hey, go to this property, go fix the leak. Um, that problem solved in basically one minute phone call. Um, so that's like really one of my simplest, awesome systems. Um, next up, um, every, uh, January I go to all my properties. I drop off, uh, air filters, right? Cause we all know your HVAC is going to last way longer if you have, if you take care of it. So every January I go to my properties, I drop off air filters. And what I do is every quarter I email my tenants and say, Hey, it's time to change the filter. Can you change it and then send me a picture back of the filter change? We do the same thing. Yeah. yeah. If you don't ask for proof, they never do it. Mm-hmm. If you don't buy them the filters, they never do it. So that's just a simple, simple solution. Um, tenant screening is perhaps the most important part of my process. Um, if you have low-quality tenants in your properties, you're going to have headaches. If you have high-quality tenants, you won't. So the minimum credit score I take is a 620-credit score. I really prefer 650 to 680. That's my sweet spot. Um, and while I would never deny a tenant based on high credit, I know someone with a 7, 750 credit score is a short-term tenant because they're going to save up money and buy a house. So my tenants that have 650 credit scores, they have too much debt to save for, up for a house, but they're responsible enough to pay their bills on time. So those people right. are my five, six, seven, ten 10-year tenants. How are you marketing to find those tenants? Yeah, so primarily I find my tenants on Zillow. Um, once we get into the colder parts of the uh, year, October through December to January, a little bit harder to find tenants. So in those cases, I will put it on the MLS. That way mm-hmm. I can have buy, uh, tenants agents <clears throat> bringing me um, tenants. But generally, Zillow is my primary. Yeah, the Zillow rental manager is, is really nice because you only pay a flat rate and ten dollars a week, which yeah. is and you're not, not very much. You're not really worried about paying out like so as a property manager too, we only get a month's rent for placement. So if I have to give some of that to another agent on the other side, it eats up into all of our profits. Because I have a listing agent on my side that I have to pay out. Right. So if I had to pay both people, we would just make no money on that part of our business. And Zillow is a really good platform because it has the messenger that's built in and it has a, a screening. I don't like their screening. I don't use their screening. Yeah, I use Rentspree now. Okay. I switched over to Rentspree. Um, but before that, I was using My Smart Move. I think that's what, what you use. Yep. That's, I use My My Smart Move mm-hmm. as well. So, what are some other documents that you collect when screening? I always I always collect a paper application in addition to the online application. So, what I found is particularly with TransUnion's My Smart Move is 
when the person applies, they do not pass the uh, social security number along to you. And I may need that social security number if I need to send someone to collections at some point. Mm -hmm. So I always get a paper application as well. Um, I also uh, look up all of my tenants on LinkedIn. Um, I don't care what they're doing on Facebook or Instagram, but I really look at their LinkedIn, see, do they have a, you know, consistent job or is, or are they job hopping every three months? Do they have big gaps in their employment resume? Um, and I've found that that's often way better than even like calling for employment verification. Um, and no one thinks that their landlord's looking at their LinkedIn, so they're not going to hide stuff there. Yeah. And going back to the first thing you mentioned about, you know, that key system, like having the same key, um, that's huge because, you know, and then having those contractors, you know, most of the time it's a plumbing issue or maybe an HVAC issue, having them on speed dial and having the ability and flexibility to send them a text. You know, I have a plumber that I just send a text to with the tenant's name, the tenant's address and the tenant's issue. And they just schedule it on their own, which is huge because it takes my focus off of it. And then I just get an invoice. And once I get the invoice, I know it's completed. Then you just pay. And I mean, that also goes to the fact that, right, so many investors are trying to nickel and dime their contractors. I I actually just want contractors that are going to get the job done the quickest Mm -hmm. and proper, regardless what I have to pay them. So I never question what they're charging me. And, you know, I use the same guys over and over again. They're always happy too, because I'm paying them as soon as, and the reason I'm paying them as soon as I get the bill is actually just so I don't forget to pay it. Mm -hmm. Um, That's one of my systems when something need, when I'm doing everything I need to do for my rental properties, I do it immediately with following the system that I have. And that way I know I don't ever think back, did I pay this bill? No, I just paid the bill when it came in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we do my leasing agent. Now he will collect their pay stubs, their bank statements. So we can verify that the pay stub is getting put somewhere and it's not a fake pay stub, their ID, like the photo ID and their rent spree application. We package it all together. We ask like five questions, like easy questions that they have to answer social, um, you know, your last landlord information, all that kind of stuff. And then he packages it up and sends it to me in an email for us to approve either or not approve. And I feel like the bank statements are the thing that we changed recently. We added that. And the bank statements actually tell you a lot more than yeah. the application and everything else. You could see their spending habits. You know, you see what they're eating. You see what they're Are spending. they constantly overdrawn? Right. Yeah. Or, you know, what are they... How much money are they making and how much are they spending each month? That's the big thing, those two numbers, right? If they bring in 3000 but they're spending 2800 and I don't even see any rent, rent yeah. then I know that's probably not, you know, probably not the best tenant. Yeah, and the biggest thing for me as far as collecting bank statements is so I can match up their actual pay stub. That way I know the pay stub is real. Um, just another form of verification. That's a good that. one because uh, as landlords, we've all gotten the fake, the fake banks uh, or pay stubs yep. from... Mm-hmm. People. Yeah. Or fake like letters of employment. Yeah. Those, I mean, how many times does a tenant apply and uh, the phone number goes to their best friend? Um, yeah. And that's really, that's one of the reasons too. I like LinkedIn. Um, while I don't, everyone should personally verify employment. Um, I don't. Um, but because when you do have the time, it's a fake person anyways. Yeah. Uh, actually, this is a very good story. So I had um investor friend call me. I was like, something seems fishy about this um, tenant application. Can you look at it? And I looked at it and I, I recognized the address. I was like, I think I knew their existing landlord. Um, so gave them a ring and I was like, is so-and-so your tenant? And they're like, yeah, but they haven't paid in six months and we're trying to evict them. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we try to call the old landlord, but you know, I'll be honest, like if you have a, 
if you're like a shitty tenant, do you think that person's motivated to tell you that they're shitty? If you're, nope. if you're they want to get rid of them, if they're potentially going to rent to you, like, yeah. you know, I don't know. I've had those people call me and I'm like, I don't really love this person, but I'm going to definitely give them a good recommendation to get them, get them moved down yeah. on my place and into somewhere else. So, and, and not only that, as far as like contacting the real landlord, if I call the number that the tenant provides, I always start with the first question I ask is, do you have any properties available for rent? And then based on how they answer that, you kind of determine if that's a real landlord yeah. or not. And then I'll start diving into it. If they say, yeah, well, no, none, none at the moment, but, and then I'll just mention, you know, the, the tenant who gave me that. That's a great sc- little screening tip. Cause someone imp- in being an imposter for the landlord is, uh, it's common. Yeah. They're not going to know how to answer that question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, What's your typical rent in DC or just across your portfolio? Yeah, so within my portfolio, I sort of had like two main assets. So I've got single family homes in the sub in the DC suburbs. My typical rents on those are around three thousand or slightly above. And then my properties in the city, which would be a row house, my typical rents on those are between four thousand and forty five hundred. Nice. Oh wow. Yeah. That's high. So, and, and you're all long-term, 100%? Yeah, I'm all long-term. So the D.C. metro area is very anti-short-term rentals. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, most of the metro area limits it to less than 90 days per, per year and only on an owner-occupied property. So really hard to execute that strategy in my market. Um, people do midterm rentals. If they go over 30 days, then it's not considered a short-term rental and then, therefore, it's not regulated. But if I was doing a midterm or even if I was doing a short-term rental, I would not be able to manage my properties in under 30 days, 30 minutes per month. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's my goal is I don't want to have to deal with tenants or the properties actually very much. Cool. So we, st- we talked about your portfolio and, and what you're doing there. Now you're involved with bigger pockets who were here at this big event here. What is your job with them? Yeah. So I got involved with bigger pockets a little over 10 years ago. So I'm a moderator on their website. Um, so they have very active forums. We have 2 million registered users on there. Um, so I enforce the rules in there as well as on their Facebook groups, help run, running their Facebook groups and moderating those. Um, and so that's been actually very, very good thing for my business. So I give them, you know, some time, expertise, knowledge in these subjects. And really they've helped me grow my brand just mm-hmm. by be, be, being visible on their sites. Um, and that's been invaluable to my business. So is that like a paid position or do you, are you working to get that kind of? So I get occasional 1099 work from them, um, for different projects here and there. Um, usually sit, they're going to be a promo code, right? Use this promo code to buy a membership and you get a little cut of that. So it does, uh, monetarily give back here and there, but it's generally not paid. Okay. Yeah. I mean, just the presence and the relationships that you probably build are probably worth more than what they could pay you to do that. Yeah, exactly. So when I come to these conferences, my visibility, everyone usually knows who I am and I'm friends with a lot of their other highly visible people, right? And so by situating myself next to these people, it helps build credibility, right? right. Um, and that's just always going to be good for your business. Absolutely. So is that what sparked you to start your own podcast? We haven't mentioned that yet. Yeah. So what sparked me to um, start our own podcast, so our podcast is the DC Real Estate Podcast. We focus on only local stuff. Um, what prompted us to do this was there's so many national real estate podcasts, um, and you would keep hearing like, oh, man, this person buying a 300-unit mobile home. That is not applicable to 
the DC metro mm-hmm. area, right? We don't have mobile home parks. Um, or you hear people buying 100-unit apartment buildings. Well, 100-unit apartment building in our market would probably be $25 million. So not something easily achievable for most mm-hmm. people. So I found that uh, with uh, one of my business partners at the time, there was just this lack of local knowledge. Um, and so we really wanted to focus on local knowledge. Um, and that's been invaluable to the business because we literally have no one competing out there with what we're doing. So it's been a great lead generation method um, for our real estate sales business. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of what, what we're doing too. Yeah. Like most of our following is Maryland. I mean, I, I say like 85% yeah. is from between New York and DC and that's our market. All of the people that we interview, 90% probably I would say 95% are Baltimore or yeah. Maryland, you know, high level business owners, high level investors. And we get to sit in front of those people and ask them questions and learn how they're scaling, like how you're scaling, how they're scaling. And we get to steal little ideas here and there and share ideas. And I'm sure we teach them something and, you know, vice versa. So I like the idea of having it locally because it does, you know, if people are listening in Colorado or in California, it's, it's great. But when we're building businesses in Maryland, like having that heavy, right. Having, having that local influence is really important because as I was just talking to some friends at lunch, uh, right in the real estate one-on-one interactions like the best thing that you can get and so whether it's a podcast or an instagram you can essentially become one-on-one with locals um by just focusing on local issues right mm-hmm. yeah so how many episodes are you in to your podcast now i think we're around um 30 episodes or so we do we broadcast every other week or so um and so we're about a little more than a year into it i think what has been the hardest part of starting the podcast and doing it? Yeah, the hardest part was the technical logistics, um, which maybe you guys can uh, relate to. So at the beginning, I had no idea what equipment to buy. Um, so I w- first thing I did was go out and buy four microphones that were just what I found, and they were all USB mics. And then I learned most computers can only record from one USB sound source at a time. So now I had all these microphones that were useless. So I had to figure out all the technical aspects. What kind of mixer do I need? The microphones, how do I produce it? How do I clean up the audio sound if it doesn't sound great? So definitely the technical aspects are really, really hard. And and one of the big problems is you think that there's tons of information on the internet about this, but there's so much information that it's overwhelming and it's hard Mm -hmm. to pick a path to follow that's correct. Um, so if you're starting a podcast, I mean, I really find someone with the technical expertise, lean into asking them anything you can to, you know, get that. Because I'm a real estate guy. I'm not a technical guy. Right. Do you guys uh, interview people on the podcast? Yeah, we typically, so we usually have three people on. I always find a three-person format is the best for nice conversational style. Mm-hmm. Um, so there'll usually be me and someone else from my team interviewing a local investor or someone else. Yeah. I agree too, because when we first started, we kind of had the idea we're just going to, the two of us were going to talk. We kind of have cool stories on how we started investing and we're at the same age and blah, blah, yep. blah. And then we were, we were kind of like, I think, running out of ideas and like it's just like the two of us sitting there talking to each other. We ran into the same issue. And yep. then we're like, well, let's start interviewing. But then, then we started interviewing. Then it turned into the more conversational stuff. And I think that's when people started really listening because it's like, because it's more entertaining too. Right. Mm-hmm. You can only listen to two dudes talk about their portfolio so many times. And when until, you're the, when you're two guys working together, you've had these same conversations 150 right. times, right? So you get someone new in there, it's, it's a new conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I learned a lot by having people on you know learning people's story it really helps 
and in Absolutely. all industries we've had people that own like beer and wine stores and you know just random stuff social media people and um you know like we've learned so much just by listening and just like letting them talk about themselves that- i almost feel like the best tips i get are from people not in my industry right because yeah. they're using some sort of idea or concept that we don't commonly use and I'm, it's like always oh, it like a light bulb moment mm-hmm. yeah absolutely Wait, you got anything else nick um so we'd like to wrap it up with goals what are your goals for heading into next year yeah so sort of my goals are um growing my real estate sales team so i just started bringing on other agents um and so really trying to sort of expand that um continuing to buy properties i try to stay really steady with buying one to two um, properties per year for myself um, so just staying steady with that and growing our podcast, growing our social media following, which uh, we're always trying to do. Yeah, the, we we were in the content creation breakout room yep. before, and some of those people on the panel are just massive social media, like the investor girl, Britt. I'm like a huge fan of what she's done with, I watched her since like the first time she was interviewed on Bigger Pockets, yep. and I followed her and just watched her, and I was like, she was doing these little rebottle videos, and now she's like posting about raising $10 million. It's like just from social media alone. Mm-hmm. It's so powerful. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I'm probably most excited about the conference, so actually when we just went to lunch, ran into Brendan Turner and Aaron, he's, uh, out on the street, he stops and he's like, hey, Russ, I love what you're doing on social media. And I'm like, this guy's a social media master and he likes what I'm doing. I felt so... Right. I haven't seen him yet. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited to run into him. He'll be. Yeah. I'm sure he'll be out on this boat uh, tonight with everyone. Sweet. Awesome. Well, Russell, thanks for coming on the show, man. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, Thank I appreciate you. it. All right.